Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the indictment of Donald Trump, who is expected to be arraigned in Manhattan on Tuesday, facing 34 counts, some of which result from the hush money payments made to silence a porn star just before the 2016 election, a crime for which Trump's fixer, Michael Cohen, went to jail. Joining us to assess why the cautious Manhattan DA changed his mind and decided to prosecute Trump, presumably because he has new evidence and possibly new crimes to pursue, is Harry Littman, a former United States Attorney and Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Justice Department, a Professor of Constitutional Law and National Security Law at the University of California, San Diego and the University of California, Los Angeles, and a Senior Fellow at the Annenberg Center at USC. He is the executive producer and host of the Talking Feds podcast and a senior legal affairs columnist at the Los Angeles Times, where his latest article is, Trump's indictment is an historic first. Here's why more are likely to follow. Then we look into the likelihood that Trump will employ his tried and true tactic of delay and defame, dragging out the trials into the summer of 2024, while riling up his base to create political division and chaos, posing as a martyr persecuted in a witch hunt by radical left Democrats while rallying the GOP to his side and locking out the other presidential primary challenges. We will discuss the sad state of affairs as one of America's two major political parties is now making a stand against the rule of law and throwing its lot in with a career criminal, serial liar and grotesque fraud. Joining us is Alan Lickman, a political historian who teaches at American University and has studied both the American right and the presidency, the author of The Case for Impeachment and The Keys to the White House, a surefire way to predicting the next president. His prediction system has correctly predicted the outcomes of all U.S. presidential elections since 1984, including the 2016 election, when against all odds he predicted a Trump victory. His most recent books are The Embattled Vote in America, Repeal the Second Amendment, The Case for a Safer America, and 13 Cracks, Repairing American Democracy After Trump. Then finally, we'll follow up on Biden's recent Summit for Democracy and address the global decline of democracies and the rule of law, with 72% of the world's population now living under autocracies, up from 46% in 2012. Joining us to explore the underused leg of the tripod of defense, diplomacy and development and discuss the need to marshal America's soft power is Daniel Rundy, Senior Vice President and Chair in Global Analysis at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, who has been at the center of Washington's debate on soft power and development for two decades. Previously, he held senior leadership roles at the World Bank Group and served in the Bush administration at the U.S. Agency for International Development. He's the author of the new book, The American Imperative, Reclaiming Global Leadership Through Soft Power. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for Background Briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls, or constant fundraising as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. 
as a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and Führer, your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Harry Littman, a former United States Attorney and Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Justice Department. He's a professor of constitutional law and national security law at the University of California, San Diego, and the University of California, Los Angeles, and a senior fellow at the Annenberg Center at the University of Southern California, and the executive producer and host of the Talking Feds podcast, and a senior legal affairs columnist at the Los Angeles Times, where his latest article is Trump's Indictment is a historic first. Here's why more is likely to follow. Welcome to Background Briefing. Harry. Thanks, and Let- good to be here. Well, thanks for joining us, Harry. And it would seem that Alvin Bragg, the Manhattan DA, who was seems very cautious, he initially, he turned down the case that Cyrus Vance had developed against Trump, much to the annoyance of a couple of the prosecutors, and then one of them, Pomerantz, wrote a book that was critical and did a media tour, which I couldn't quite follow what he was saying. But the long and the short of it is, it would seem to me that if Bragg starts out being cautious and now is really sticking his neck out, being the first to indict a former president and a current uh, candidate for the presidency, Something must have happened in the interim. What do you think happened? Does he, ha- he really has something? Because they're talking maybe about 34 counts that will be re- revealed on Tuesday. Yeah, so I look, he must. And the, uh, you know, to the extent he's drawing fire from Trump and his allies for a political prosecution, it's a kind of um, good credential that we know he passed on it um, before. So, and the ge- the general resolution of that, ba- oh, a political prosecution, no rule of law, has everything to do with the nature of the allegations and the evidence. I, we can be pretty confident that one thing that's, that at least some of the people in the office were concerned about, namely Michael Cohen's credibility, he's um, been strategic about shoring up and, we know that, for example, Hope Hicks, uh, who is likely to be an impeccable witness, supports him in certain ways. And, you know, we'll look to that. To the 34 counts, um, the, as as your listeners, I think, know, but it gets a little legal, uh, the uh, basic charge of misidentifying paperwork is a misdemeanor, but it's elevated to a felony if it's in support of another crime. So it's going to be, I think, the number one question that um, the punditry and everyone will will want to know, how has he uh, re-established things to put it on firmer ground? You know, all the counts um, one possibility to me, uh, you know, dusting off my high school math is 34 is um, three times 11 or plus one. And the way I break it down is there are 11 counts of there are 11 checks that 
uh, Michael Cohen received in reimbursement for the hush money payment that came out of his pocket. And those checks were all concealed uh, as payments for his services. I think it's likely that the um, plethora of counts is just going to be related to these individual checks. So in that sense, you know, less less um, eyebrow raising, but that there is an additional conspiracy count. And that, I think, does a fair bit to put it on more um, uh, sort of solemn or serious ground. So my sense, uh, that, and, uh, you know, one other small scintilla of evidence for this, the very last person that he brought before the grand jury when everyone was wondering when, what the hell's going on, why isn't he pulling the trigger? Um, there, there's one mystery witness after that was brief, but David Pecker, who's the head of the, was the head of the National Enquirer, to me, um, suggests a um, charging, not just of Stormy Daniels, but a whole um, line, a whole scheme of activity that dates from when Pecker and Trump together agree that this is how they're going to handle women who come out of the woodwork. They do it for Karen McDougal. They then is Stormy Daniels. And it goes on the other side, even in the White House, Trump is signing checks to Michael Cohen and they're camouflaged. It's, you know, it's all essentially a cover up scheme. So people don't know what he's done and for political reasons, as Pecker can can attest. So to me, that that is um, that could put it on both conspiracy and perhaps tax grounds, other financial crimes, but also just gives it a kind of um, weightiness that belies these claims. Oh, it's just an accounting case, which is the pot shots you're hearing from some Republicans who, of course, haven't seen the indictment yet. Well, the significance of Stormy Daniels is had Trump not paid her off, she would have gone public just before the election after the uh, Access Hollywood tape had done so much damage and WikiLeaks' uh, Julian Assange came to Trump's rescue to try and take that story off the headlines. And obviously, you know, Comey also didn't help as well. But it's, it's, and just to make a quick point there, I mean, that's why I've suggested we should see this in terms of the old uh, adage. It's not the crime, it's the cover-up. It's not the, the hush money, it's the whole scheme to keep it, to conceal it from the American people and the FV, uh, you know, and the Federal Election Commission, etc. That's what's so felonious and so Trumpian. Right. And this, the other somewhat thin read is the campaign finance charges in order to make it a felony, which is a federal case, but the state would then be up against, they've had to alter the statute of limitations, haven't they, on the basis of COVID? It, it sounds pretty weak, that read. But this well, no, I think you may be conflating two things. There, there would be a statute of limitations problem, except there isn't because it's told while Trump is out of the jurisdiction, which he's been almost continuously. You're right that, you know, everyone's looking for the second crime that elevates a misdemeanor to a felony. And yes, either a federal campaign finance or a state campaign finance has flaws. Um, but that's why I'm wondering, and you know, we just got to wait for Tuesday, whether it's in fact something like tax violations or more orthodox um, uh, financial crimes 
so and and that would mean they don't go the route of the campaign finance as the sort of auxiliary elevating crime, which is where they were thinking, as I understand it, a year ago. So that's the number one question that I'll be, you know, ripping into the indictment as soon as I have it to see what they've done and if they've gone that route or changed it. I think they've changed. I, I think and hope they will have changed it, but just don't know until Tuesday. But you also, in in your article at the Los Angeles Times, Harry Lippmann, Trump's indictment is an historic first. Here's why more are likely to follow. You mentioned that uh, particularly the cases that Jack Smith is handling are looking more and more dangerous for Trump, particularly given the fact that Evan Corcoran, Trump's lawyer, had to testify. He was ordered by U.S. District Judge Beryl Howell and also that now looks as if uh, Jack Smith is, is going to be able to get Mike Pence and Mark Meadows to testify. And surely they really could be the key, couldn't they? I mean, they have to know everything. And I've always been astounded that the man who Trump literally put a target on his back and they were trying to hang him has basically been unable to man up to the fact that his boss ha- tried to have him killed. Right. Well, I mean, everything's in all manhood, as Gary Trudeau says, is in trust while he tries to run for president and he's just, he just <laughs> doesn't want to alienate the base. But the, you've named, you know, three people in two cases there. I, yeah, I did want to point out in the op-ed because some very big blows Smith was striking while we were all focused, you know, in our vigil on Manhattan waiting for the indictment. And they are big. Corker and I agree is is quite big for the um, Mar-a-Lago case that the communications he's been required to testify about take place just as Trump is, you know, after bobbing and weaving for a year and a half, he is choosing irrevocably criminality. It's, you know, the false declaration is returned to the DOJ from their subpoena. And that's where it's really, you know, no way around um, somebody being criminal. And since the court decided that the communications themselves uh, are evidence of a crime. I got to believe that testimony is really killer. And I also think now that he has Corcoran, I don't see what else, if there's much left for Smith to do to make the case. So I think suddenly that's moved up to, you know, the um, the, the the batter circle, as it were. Now, um, it also was very important, the orders to Meadows and Pence, but they're, uh, they each still have, you know, the, he's not through, Smith is not through the obstacle course yet. Meadows, I, who's number one witness, he knows everything and he's really, between some good luck and good lawyering, he's really kept his uh, nose clean. Uh, um, he um, He's going to take the fifth, I think. And so that will be a question of whether to immunize him. And Pence is probably going to appeal it's a lousy claim, speech or debate clause, and I think the district court was right to say, well, maybe you're protected for when you're in the Senate, but not for your private conversations when Trump is, um, legal term I think is ripping you a new one. 
but um, he it, it is a it, there's not much law on the books there, um, so it, they may it it may take a little bit of time to go up and down the court of if a court above the district court wants to try to you know put its own imprimatur on the the, the test that the district court uh, set out. So, but that much much closer, not re- not ready yet on, but you know it's a it's a huge sprawling case and mar-a-lago i think i i think it's going to be um soon and i think it's going to take less time than either new york or fulton county so it's not going to be long until you know this striking thing that happened thursday is going to be multiplied and you know it's just going to be criminal charges all over the leading candidate for the republican presidential nomination and how will all his republican colleagues react then is, will everything be uh you know, a witch hunt and bogus, so. Well, but the problem has been, though, that Trump has always been one step ahead of the sheriff, all of his business life and his political life, and he's dodged so many bullets, uh, mm-hmm. two impeachments, the Mueller report, thanks to, which was spiked by Bill Barr. So that's led the impression uh, with much of the country and all of his base that this is a, you know, as Trump says, a radical left Democrat witch hunt. That's the problem, isn't it? That Trump has been something of a Houdini. But the cumulative evidence of all of what we've known over the years means that this guy is absolutely ripe to be uh, charged and has just gotten away with murder. He has, of course. Houdini eventually met his uh, his match um, in 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 painful fashion and died. But um, uh, you're, I think you're, there's two different problems. You know, the the first answer to the problem you're, of his having gotten off scot free again and again is just the strength of the evidence. And it, you know, when you're indicted and you're facing a, a a trial, there's there's no little quick escape route. You you need to get an acquittal or or have it dismissed, et cetera. So I think it's much more serious hot waters. And on the other hand, um, I think you're right that there's going to be a big chunk of the country and of the political leadership that will uh, take every, you know, legal turn and uh, filter it through a political election process and make and get everyone riled up, maybe even and send, you know, incite them to civil disobedience or worse. In other words, we look to trials like this to kind of just bring settlement and resolution to big social disputes. And I've never, this is this case, I don't remember one as strong for, for as inauspicious. You know, I can imagine the system reaching results and still um, a, a crazed, you know, chunk. 30%, whatever, of, of Trump's supporting the Republican Party, still not not buying it. But look, you know, I think, for instance, I think the big lie, you know, tell me, do you agree? Is It's sort of been, it's sort of been settled, I think, socially, that 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 it was a lie. And there, there are some holdouts, including Trump himself, who keep um, uh, singing that refrain but i think the country is pretty well even big trump supporters are pretty well moved on pretty well and so i the hope is that the trials will serve to bring you know a general social resolution that maybe 
70% buy and the other 30% don't stop fighting about or whatever. But that's this is he's going to impose a huge stress test on the system with with uh, the way he you know responds and tries to rev up his troops. No doubt about it. Sure, but his main tactic has always been delay, 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 and he could delay this all the way through to the next summer. <laughs> Not clear. All... Oh, to next summer. Yes, I agree. I agree. And, and he he's already on Friday. He'd raised four million dollars in twenty four hours, and. He's gotten six governors, 26 senators, House yep. Speaker Kevin McCarthy, 63 House members, 10 states attorney generals to join in with him. And I think that, that he's made himself likely to be the nominee because now it's the loyalty test. You can't go against the martyr-in-chief who's being attacked by the radical left witch-hunting Democrats. So you've even got DeSantis sort of joining in the chorus with this right, anti-Semitic right, right. slur against, yeah. going, you know, anti-Semitic slur against uh, George Soros. So I think that that's the interesting political thing is that this is going to help Trump get the nomination. So Maybe. at least Look, that's the how- political is the legal and the legal is the political. And that is, you know, Donald Trump to a T as, as it were, it's all, it's all true. I think you know the. I, so I think the question will be um, what what prospects this means for the the you know the general election and does something kind of give? Does he eventually sort of sue for peace if he's facing actual you know jail time? But look, I that's that is. I think you put your you know finger on the essential challenge here because this is all. Um, you know, normally it's a big trial, so everyone will sit back and see what the judicial system um, uh, decides. Not here, right? From the from day one, there's just it's going to be filtered through crazy political rhetoric. An interesting thing is whether the you know if he keeps up some of this more menacing. He, what did he tweet last night? How much more can patriots take? That's getting pretty damn close to rallying up for threats. And even if it doesn't pass a First Amendment test for criminalizing, a, the court, the judge, can impose order try to for, for the safety of court folks and for the, the integrity of the jury pool. And there's a chance of a gag order here that he then violates and violates and violates again. And the last uh, you know tool in the toolkit of the judge would be putting him in jail so there there he could really butt heads um and he he is at least in this the realm he's going to be in tuesday not in ultimate control and that's not a position he's used to or i think can maybe can even abide so just in closing then harry Lindman, the purpose of my radio show is to try and create a reality-based community in post-truth America, and yeah. how is that going? And you know, when you look at, you think about the people that support Trump, how do you demystify that world? I mean, for example, the New York Republican Club statement begins: President Trump embodies the American people, our psyche from id to super ego, as does no figure. His soul is totally bonded with our core values and emotions, and he is our total and indisputable champion. This tremendous connection threatens the established order. President Trump assured us that he was our retribution. Now we must return the rejoinder. Our victory will only be the joint vindication that our great president, Donald J. Trump, and our American people both deserve. 
this is total war. So do you think that finally the truth will make cracks into the into that well-established delusion that so many people have about this man who is truly one of the worst human beings that, that one can imagine, and yet they if love they, him. Yeah. If they have it or if they just adore him, you know, not withstanding, that is the big, uh, not the big challenge, but also what's so unprecedented about this situation because it kind of envelops and combines with what would be the normal legal process. So look, it's the biggest problem facing uh, America, I think, and and it's it's so debased and it will go down in history that way. Will this solve it? You know, I I can't say. It does seem really daunting to me too, but I do think it's worth just blinking and thinking about this three months down the line, four months down the line where he's facing charges from two or three jurisdictions where maybe he's behaved like a total um, outlaw, which he is in the, you know, in, in some of the cases and and really brought himself into disrepute. Does he peel off? I don't know who wrote that, but are there people who go to the New York Republican Club for who finally, you know, uh, say this is this is too much? That, that's been the imponderable of Trump from day um, one and and I, I certainly you know you, you're certainly right that the the fir- last two weeks have suggested that this crazy martyrdom and um, you know he's he is a poster child for bad defendants he says all this stuff that they can use against him in cross examination and but it, 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 if you if you think of it as taking a huge gamble and to become president and then you know we'll take it from there. Um, it's it's um, hard to to uh, say that being convicted even of serious crimes will be uh, uh, you know a, a complete safety proof um, resolution of that. We could be in a situation where a convict who uh, can't be pardoned in the federal system right now is running for president, is elected president. You you know you get to to all these complete crazy. Um, scenarios, but um, the the alternative to what's starting to happen now is is throwing in the towel on the rule of law. So um, I I do I would say this, notwithstanding rhetoric like that, the little bit we've seen of like actual demonstrations, right, have been you know a dozen kind of ragtag uh, mm-hmm. people out front. We'll we'll see if people really have the stomach to be out day in day out and and rev them up the same way, but. Look, you're totally right, and that's the challenge to the whole system, not just the legal system, that these uh, prosecutions portend. Well, Harry Lipman, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Always a pleasure, Ian, always so interesting and a step ahead. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Harry. And again, I've been speaking with Harry Lipman, the former United States Attorney and Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Justice Department. He's a professor of constitutional law and national security law at the University of California, San Diego and the University of California, Los Angeles, and a senior fellow at the Annenberg Center at the University of Southern California and the executive producer and host of the Talking Feds podcast and a senior legal affairs columnist at the Los Angeles Times, where his latest article is Trump's indictment is a historic first. Here's why more is likely to follow. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into the likelihood that Trump will employ his tried and true tactic of delay and defame 
dragging out the trials into the summer of 2024 while riling up his base to create political division and chaos, posing as a martyr persecuted in a witch hunt by radical left Democrats while rallying the GOP to his side and locking out other presidential primary challenges. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Alan Lickman, a political historian who teaches at American University and has studied both the American right and the presidency, the author of The Case for Impeachment and The Keys to the White House, a surefire way of predicting the next president. His prediction system has correctly predicted the outcomes of all U.S. presidential elections since 1984, including the 2016 election when, against all odds, he predicted a Trump victory. His most recent books are The Embattled Vote in America, Repeal the Second Amendment, The Case for a Safer America, and 13 Cracks, Repairing American Democracy After Trump. Welcome to Background Briefing, Alan Lickman. Thank you, Ian. So, Alan, it looks as though, I I think it's safe to predict that in many ways Donald Trump sees this as, as a kind of gift, this indictment coming up on Tuesday, and... Already, the polls are indicating, at least the new Yahoo News YouGov poll, has Trump surging to his largest ever lead over Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Just a couple of weeks ago, the same poll had Trump at 47% and DeSantis at 39%. Other polls had DeSantis narrowly ahead of Trump at 45 to 41%. But now, in this post-indictment poll, Trump is beating DeSantis by 26 percentage points, 57 to 31. So you're predicting the outcomes of presidential elections accurately, including the 2016. Could you predict that Trump will be the Republican nominee? I make no such prediction. Let me begin by saying it is a sad, sad state of our democracy. When the overwhelming majority of the leadership of one of our two great parties and a major faction of its rank and file thinks that being indicted for criminal offenses, perhaps more than 30 counts, is somehow a badge of honor. That is truly a sad commentary on where our country is in this moment, how far the party of Lincoln has fallen. Moreover, in defending Trump, they have reprised some of the worst uh, anti-Semitic and racist stereotypes, you know, claiming that uh, the New York prosecutor who's African-American is being manipulated by the Jewish 
billionaire George Soros. This goes all the way back to the protocols of the elders of Zion. You know, the forgery of, of the Russian czar that the Jews were plotting to take over the world. You know, and this was picked up by the right in America in the early 20th century. The Jews were plotting to take over the country and using unwitting African-Americans as their instrument. Who would have thought that, you know, in 2023, these old, awful stereotypes will be reprised? Secondly, place no credence in polls this early. This indictment is the first act, not the last act, in my view, of the extreme criminal legal troubles that Donald Trump faces. He is likely to be indicted in Georgia for election tampering and other crimes, likely to be indicted by the Department of Justice for mishandling uh, national security documents and undermining our national security for inciting uh, an, an insurrection. So there's a lot more to come. And, uh, you know, the arguments they've made against this prosecutor and this case are going to look pretty pathetic when these other cases come down the road. So I would uh, withhold judgment at this point. And while it may help him in the primaries, Early on, I don't think ultimately it will and certainly will be an albatross for the general election. But his main tactic has always been to delay, delay, delay. So he could string this thing out until next summer, couldn't he? Uh, quite possibly. But, you know, his tactics, I think, are likely to backfire. He's already attacked the judge. You don't do that. That is the stupidest thing you possibly could do as a criminal defendant who wants to, as you say, make motions to delay and even get the a trial dismissed. Who's going to be ruling on those motions? The very judge that uh, Donald Trump has stupidly attacked in New York. You know, his tactics have really worked for over 50 years, ever since he was found by the Department of Justice to have violated the Fair Housing Act in his real estate company way back in the early 70s. But now I think Donald Trump's transgressions are coming back to haunt him. And I don't think his strategy of delay, deflect, attack is going to work this time. And of course, he did threaten the district attorney, Alvin Bragg, holding a baseball bat up against a portrait of Alvin Bragg. He's called him an animal. He's had to back down and claim that he didn't do that or somebody else did it. So those are actual counts, aren't they? There's over 30 counts, at least, that's what we hear, pending on Tuesday. They could add those counts, couldn't they, threatening Alvin Bragg? Absolutely, they, they could add to those counts. Threatening a prosecutor is clearly a, a, a crime. You know, whether they want to do that or not is, uh, is, is uncertain. And, you know, let's not forget, at this point, we don't know exactly what the charges are or what the evidence is behind them. You would naturally expect Trump and his supporters to have a knee-jerk reaction against all this. It's all predictable. But what I think has been an example of egregious irresponsibility is a lot of the commentary coming out of the mainstream, supposedly independent media which without knowing what the charges are, without knowing what the evidence is, has jumped to the conclusion that this is a weak case and maybe shouldn't have been brought first or maybe shouldn't have been brought at all. 
I point egregiously to a editorial by the editorial board of the supposedly liberal Washington Post. And I point egregiously to CNN commentator Ellie Honig, who wrote a whole book about how the rich and powerful get away with their discretions and his commentary pouring cold water on this and in, in, in potential of uh, this indictment where he doesn't know the charges or the evidence has played right into the hands of the rich and powerful Donald Trump and his efforts to worm out of this. It's just hope, just incredibly irresponsible how a chunk of the supposed independent mainstream media has once again been played for a sucker by Donald Trump. It's happened time and time again, and you would think they would learn, but they're like Charlie Brown with the football that's always snatched away from him at the last second. Well, just you mentioned Soros and the anti-Semitism that's, that's spouting forth from supporters of Trump. Soros never made any direct campaign contribution to Alvin Bragg. He did make a charitable donation to Color of Change, which is a group that tries to get African-Americans elected. And they did run an independent expenditure campaign to help elect Alvin Bragg. But there's no money that came directly from Soros to Alvin Bragg. He was basically giving money to Color of Change because they help elect minorities, particularly African-Americans, to political office, and that's their role. So <laughs> we've got Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, gets $2 billion from the Saudi crown prince, who's now cozying up to Putin and Xi Jinping and gouging the American public every time they go to the pump. I can't understand the blindness of... of is the impulse anti-Semitism? Is that what it is? It's anti-Semitism, it's racism, and it's the effectiveness of the big lie, which Trump has long exploited, right? You know, lie loudly enough and often enough, and people will come to believe it, particularly in this age where there is, you know, people in their little online social media bubbles getting nothing but feedback that reinforces their prejudice and being... Uh, immune to the truth. You know, understand that for Donald Trump and his followers, there is no such thing as truth in the conventional sense of what is sustained by evidence, logic, and analysis. Rather, truth is purely transactional. It is purely what benefits them and absolutely nothing more. And it turns out, by the way, that George Soros has never met Alvin Bragg, has never communicated in any way with Alvin, Alvin Bragg. You know, this is a bit like Donald Trump saying, you know, I declassified documents by thinking about it. Did George Soros manipulate Alvin Bragg, a Harvard Law School graduate, by the way, by thinking about it since the two have never had any communications with one another? And, you know, how many tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars have Republican candidates received from the Koch brothers? Does that mean they're all tools of the Koch brothers and just doing the bidding of the Koch brothers, you know, it, 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 it staggers the imagination, but it's part of the Trump playbook, which is to play on anti-Semitism, to play on racism. Well, there's a statement from the New York Republican Club, which is just extraordinary. I'll just quote a little bit of it, Alan. Radical leftist interests beholden to an elite internationalist cabal have taken the unprecedented step of indicting Donald Trump, President Donald J. Trump, the leading candidate 
for the 2024 presidential election. President Trump assured us that he was our retribution. Now we must return the rejoinder. Our victory will be the joint vindication that our great President John J. Trump and our American people both deserve. This is total war. So how bad can it get? I mean, my sense is that it's true that he's got a lot more legal troubles and more cases coming, but there is this alternative universe out there, and Fox News are going to be pumping it. And and just on Thursday, Trump said, I believe this witch hunt will backfire massively on Joe Biden. The American people realize exactly what the radical left Democrats are doing here. Everyone can see it. So our movement and our party, united and strong, will first defeat Alvin Bragg, and then we will defeat Joe Biden, and we are going to throw every last one of these crooked Democrats out of office so we can make America great again. So is this a real threat or bluff? I mean, I I'm, I think we're going to have a terrible year, frankly, coming up. Yeah, it is utterly sad that, again, one of our great political parties, the party of Lincoln, should be resorting to these tactics, which you would expect in an authoritarian uh, regime, this kind of, you know, things uh, Vladimir Putin does, you know, exacting violence and retribution. Uh, But I think it's fizzling. I think Donald Trump has cried wolf one too many times. And my evidence for this is not just fond hope that, you know, there won't be violence and disorder, but look look at the, how the demonstrations have fizzled. No one showed up. You know, at most, there were a couple of dozen people at Mar-a-Lago, as few as, you know, less than a dozen at, at one time or another. You know, the rank and file, at least so far, has not uh, followed Trump's call to vote with their peace and show up and demonstrate. So I, I think this may well be a, a big fizzle. Where I am worried is that Trump riles up, you know, those very few people who already have violent in, uh, inclinations, who already have severe uh, mental issues. And it only takes a couple of them, you know, to go after Alan Bragg, Joe Biden, Stormy Daniels, whoever. That's what I'm afraid of rather than mass insurrection again. I don't think that's going to happen. Well, Marjorie Taylor Greene is going to show up on Tuesday downtown Manhattan near Chinatown where all the federal and state buildings are in terms of law enforcement and courts. So obviously there's going to be a lot of press and there's going to be a lot of uh, NYPD protection. So I guess, you know, your point is well taken. It uh, only takes one crazy guy with a sniper's rifle. Yeah. And you've got more guns than people in this country, so there's no shortage of crazy people and, and military arms. Yeah, you know, and anyone can easily get uh, a military-grade weapon capable of firing, you know, 50 rounds a minute and shredding bodies in horrible ways. Yeah, that, that, that is the real worry. I really don't think we're going to get mass demonstrations, though. I think that Trump's... Uh, luck on that has run out. He's gone to the well just too many times. And again, I caution everybody with the following. And unfortunately, the much of the mainstream media hasn't listened to this. Be patient. It's way too early to make judgments. 
about this indictment, which may be much more serious and much more strongly backed with evidence than Ellie Honing or the Washington Post editorial board would have us believe. And there is so much more to come that is going to affect all of this that you've just got to be patient. I know the media has got to cover the story every day and there is this pressure to, you know, say provocative things, but that's bad for the country. Be a little bit patient. There is so much more to come. This is the beginning of the first act of a multi-act uh, drama. So, Alan Lickman, just in the last couple of minutes, is the problem here the fact that Trump has simply gotten away with so much over the decades, being one step ahead of the sheriff, both in his, in his business life and in his political life, and the fact that all of the money laundering that went on from Brighton Beach through Trump properties and through the casinos in Atlantic City, all the Russian oligarchs funneling money to him through Deutsche Bank. I mean, counterintelligence people have massive files on it, but somehow they've never nailed him. And then you had not just two impeachment attempts, but you also had the Mueller report, which, which uh, Bill Barr managed to basically do an end run on Mueller, and this has left the impression with Trump supporters and the entire Republican Party that this whole thing is a radical left Democrat witch hunt. So is that the problem, is that the guy's never been nailed, which means, for God's sake, they better nail him this time, otherwise this thing is just going to continue. I think that's a big part of it. Trump has spent... 50 plus years, ever since he was caught violating the Fair Housing Act, discriminating against minorities in New York City and his real estate company. You know, that was uh, 50 years ago, uh, breaking the Cuban embargo, uh, using illegal immigrants to help clear the ground for Trump Tower, you name it, you know, money laundering. He's gotten away with everything. And uh, I do think there is this notion that. Uh, because he's gotten away with everything, you know, anything that tries to get him is political, is a witch hunt. Plus, I think you see from Trump's behavior that he still thinks he's invulnerable. He still thinks he's going to get away with everything and he can trash the prosecutor. He can, you know, threaten him with a baseball bat, call the African-American an animal, uh, play upon racism and anti-Semitism, attack the judge. He thinks he still can do anything he wants and get away with it. But I don't think it's going to happen this time. I think karma is finally going to catch up with him. Well, the law better come along with the karma, though. And I guess the point you're making is we don't really know what's what's in this indictment. It could be more than 30 counts. And on top of that, you've got the case in Atlanta, and then you've got at least two cases in the, in the hands of the Department of Justice's uh, special counsel. Let me remind you of a couple of other things. You know, Trump says, I've never done anything wrong. Well, the Trump Organization, which is Donald Trump, there's, there's no board of directors, has already been found by a jury to be a criminal enterprise and had to pay the maximum fine allowable in New York State. His charity, the Trump charity was found to be a sham and was shut down. He had to pay $25 million to settle a lawsuit against the, the sham at Trump University. So if you look at the record, <laughs> there is a lot already uh, 
indicating, you know, the nefarious ways Trump operates. Plus, let's not forget this month, he is facing a civil case brought by E. Jean Carroll, who said that uh, he raped her in the 1990s and then defamed her. And then in October, there's going to be a big civil case in New York State charging the Trump organization with all kinds of violations and uh, demanding a $250 million payment and the dissolution of its operations in New York. (laughs) You know, you you can't count the ways in which Trump is in legal trouble. Well, Alan Lickman, I thank you so much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Anytime, Ian. Take care. And again, I've been speaking with Alan Lickman, who's a political historian who teaches at American University and has studied both the American right and the presidency, the author of The Case for Impeachment and The Keys to the White House, a surefire way of predicting the next president. His prediction system has correctly predicted the outcomes of all U.S. presidential elections since 1984, including the 2016 election, when against all odds he predicted a Trump victory. His most recent books are The Embattled Vote in America, Repeal the Second Amendment, The Case for a Safer America, and 13 Cracks, Repairing American Democracy After Trump. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with a follow-up on Biden's recent summit for democracy and address the global decline in democracies and the rule of law with 72% of the world's population now living under autocracies, up from 46% in 2012. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Daniel Rundy, who's a Senior Vice President and Chair in Global Analysis at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, who has been at the center of the Washington debate on soft power and development for two decades. Previously, he held senior leadership roles at the World Bank Group and served in the Bush administration at the U.S. Agency for International Development. And he's been an advisor to a number of Republican presidential campaigns since 2012. And he's the author of the new book, The American Imperative, Reclaiming Global Leadership Through Soft Power. Welcome to Background Briefing, Daniel Rundy. Ian, thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, thanks for joining us, Daniel. And a recent report from uh, the Institute Varieties of Democracy finds that 72% of the world's population now live in autocracies, which is up from 46% in 2012. And Freedom House recently declared that 2022 was the 17th consecutive year of global democratic decline. So why is it that democracies and the rule of law are in retreat, whereas uh, autocracies and kleptocracies are on the rise? That is a really great question. I can remember 2006 really clearly as sort of the high point of kind of human freedom as we've known it in the world. I mean, I think I, I, without being Pollyannish about what you've just said, because everything you've said, I agree with. If we go back to 1980, I think the number of countries in the world, the world is still a freer place than say 40 years ago. Uh, and I'd say at the same time, I think the cha- we have seen major democratic backsliding and significant closing of democratic space. Some of it has to do with that. The bad guys have gotten better at being bad. 
meaning that they've kind of they have a there's a there's a democracy playbook, there's a human rights playbook for the good guys, but there's also a closing civic space playbook for the bad guys. And they unfortunately learn from each other. And, uh, you know, I think there was a hope 15 or 20 years ago that the Internet and cell phones were going to be a a vessel for human freedom. And they are in some ways. But if if handled in a poor way, they're also a, a, a vector for uh, techno authoritarianism. And so and Big Brother on steroids. So I think technology has been both has been a double edged sword. There's been, unfortunately, bad learnings. I also think. You know, Ken um, Ken Wallach, who used to run the National Democratic Institute, one of the four democracy institutes of the National Endowment for Democracy, set up more than forty years ago by Ronald Reagan, uh, in partnership with the Democratic Congress, was um, would always say that, and also former Secretary Albright, both of them would say that um, we need to deliver on democracy. And I think it's one thing to have an election. I'm on the board of the International Foundation for Electoral Systems, which kind of helps set the table for elections and trying to run free and fair elections as much as you can and in a complicated world. Um, so one thing is to have an election, and that's important, and it's important to engage in the practice of democracy. But you need a whole bunch of other stuff to have a functioning democracy. You need a, some kind of free media. You need some ability to meet. It, pro it helps, in my view, uh, a lot. If you've got freedom of religion and you've got religious communities that can meet, I think that matters and how you treat people matters. Um, but I also think it matters whether or not once you get elected, whether or not you actually follow through on the things you say you're going to do. So if you say you're going to do something, it's important to deliver. And to the extent that there's also corruption, corruption is a vote moving issue in many countries in the world. And so you, I think when you have when you're entrusted by the people with governing the if your government has some major corruption scandal it poisons the well on reform and poisons the well on your cause and so i think there's been you know setbacks because some governments haven't delivered some governments have participated in corruption and then also the bad guys have gotten better at being bad at the same time, that doesn't mean we shouldn't keep fighting for this. Uh, democracy, with all its flaws, is a heck of a lot better than authoritarian regimes. And you've seen countries and you've seen people rise up. If you look at what's happening in Ukraine, they're in essence fighting for their ch chance to be free. They want to be independent, but they also want to have a democracy. They're fighting for the chance to have a democracy and a better, a better quality democracy. I would also argue, if you look at China, you have saw those folks that were that were holding up white pieces of blank pieces of paper with not no no message on them if you'll recall several months ago something like this and i think it was a way of saying we want um we want more freedom we want more freedom of speech we want more freedom of association and we actually want to be able to you know we're unhappy with the with the the government as as it's currently organized in mainland china um you've seen protests, war, anti-war protests in Russia. And if you look at some polling, I think I, I'm not up to date on this, Ian, but if you look at the polling that the World Economic Forum's done over the last 20 years or, or you know, in partnership with the World Economic Forum, you look at global, one of the top vote moving issues in many societies is the issue of corruption. So 
one of the things we ought to be doing is is working on corruption issues. So I think it was great that President Biden hosted a democracy summit. But I think we want to continue to lead a coalition of the willing on improving the space for democracy. Because if we don't push on that, if we don't push on anti-corruption work, if we don't push on human rights, we don't push on democracy, no one else is going to do it. Like we, So the U.S. alone can't do it. But I would argue that in the last 80 years since the end of World War II, major progress has required the U.S. to push and partnership with others in a willing partnership with others to the extent we're not pushing and we're not actively involved. It, we it doesn't it's not going to ultimately happen. We need the, the United States is, ne- is a necessary component. It's the, not the only thing we can't do anything alone. But if we're not there pushing on these issues it's it, we're not going to see movement or progress. And the my final point, I'm sorry for such a long answer, but it's a really good and really important question, is you know working towards improving democratic governance is like a really hard and long term project, hard to measure, and you got to measure it in terms of decades over time. And so you have to take like a very long game, take a long approach to these things. So I know I hope that answers your question. Well, just to touch on uh, the China that you mentioned, uh, the, the white, the blank sheets of paper were in response to uh, a building that caught on fire because of the COVID lockdown, and people were burned alive, and it outraged the Chinese people. And it indicates that there is a, a spirit, if you will, for for democratic reform. We saw it at Tiananmen, of course, um, but then after that, the Communist Party decided to encourage materialism and nationalism, but it hasn't clearly died. And you can't have a war with China. I mean, there's fears over over Taiwan, but it would be a catastrophe and they have nuclear weapons. So I think logically the only thing left is soft power and to encourage the Chinese people that there's an alternative to the this ubiquitous surveillance state that Xi Jinping runs. And after all, Surely the Cold War ended and uh, the Berlin Wall came down. It had a lot to do with rock and roll and MTV and blue jeans. It wasn't entirely about nuclear weapons. So do you think the American foreign policy establishment has learned that lesson and understands that the, the, the tripod, as, you, as it's described, of diplomacy, defense, and development is askew because... Um, the defense side of it is is so much bigger, and therefore the tripod is out of balance. Yeah, thanks for asking that. I think we need to, though, at the same time, get our act together. I think we need to have a 20 or 30-year soft power strategy, as we did at the early Cold War, at the beginning of the Marshall Plan. But really, with John F. Kennedy, John F. Kennedy read this book called The Ugly American, which was published in 1958. And I would argue it's the most important book of the second half of the 20th century of American foreign policy. And it, it caused a revolution in thinking in Washington. John F. Kennedy gave 100 copies of that book to every member of the U.S. Senate. And that book led to the establishment of the Peace Corps, the Green Berets, a reform of the U.S. Information Agency, a full reform of American foreign assistance, a new initiative just for the Western Hemisphere called the Alliance for Progress, uh, and a strengthening of institutions like the Inter-American Development Bank. This is all as a result of the ugly American. So I think we um, need a we need a bipartisan consensus. We need to work with our allies in the West. The United States has never done anything of any significance alone. So we need to have a 
reformed bipartisan consensus in the United States. It's going to be a bumpy 24 months. It's going to take a couple of years. I think we're going to have to get through a lot of messy politics, unfortunately, in the U.S. Uh, over the next two years. We're probably going to get through this term, unfortunately. So this is a book for the next five. I wrote this book to have to try and initiate a debate over the next five years on this issue. But I ultimately think this is not an argument, a discussion just for the United States. This is a conversation for our friends in OECD countries as well. Dan Rundy, I thank you so much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Thanks, Ian. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you today. And again, I'll be speaking with Daniel Rundy, who's a Senior Vice President and Chair in Global Analysis at the Center for Strategic International Studies, who has been at the center of the Washington debate on soft power and development for two decades. Previously, he held senior leadership roles at the World Bank Group and served in the Bush administration at the U.S. Agency for International Development. And he's been an advisor to a number of Republican presidential campaigns since 2012 and is the author of the new book, the American Imperative, Reclaiming Global Leadership Through Soft Power. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past Yeah, the